Part seven of the Praise of Folly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. The Praise of Folly by Desiderius Erasmus. Translated by John Wilson. Part seven. Paul knew what faith was, and yet when he said, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen, he did not define it doctor like. And as he understood charity well himself, so he did as illogically divide and define it to others in his first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter the thirteenth. And devoutly, no doubt, did the apostles consecrate the Eucharist, yet had they been asked the question touching the terminus ad quo and the terminus ad quem of transubstantiation, of the manner of how the same body can be in several places at one and the same time, of the difference the body of Christ has in heaven from that of the cross, of this in the sacrament, in what point of time transubstantiation is, whereas prayer, by means of which it is, as being a discrete quantity, is transient. They would not, I conceive, have answered with the same subtlety as the Scottists dispute and define it. They knew the mother of Jesus, but which of them has so philosophically demonstrated how she was preserved from original sin as have done our divines? Peter received the keys, and from him, too, that would not have trusted them with a person unworthy. Yet, whether he had understanding or no, I know not, for certainly he never attained to that subtlety to determine how he could have the key of knowledge that had no knowledge himself. They baptized far and near, and yet taught nowhere what was the formal, material, efficient, and final cause of baptism, nor made the least mention of delible and indelible characters. They worshipped, tis true, but in spirit, following herein no other than that of the gospel. God is a spirit, and they that worship must worship him in spirit and truth. Yet it does not appear, it was at that time revealed to them, that an image sketched on the wall with a coal was to be worshipped with the same worship as Christ himself, if at least the two forefingers be stretched out, the hair long and uncut, and have three rays about the crown of the head. For who can conceive these things, unless he has spent at least six and thirty years in the philosophical and supercelestial whims of Aristotle and the schoolmen? In like manner the apostles pressed to his grace, but which of them distinguishes between free grace and grace that makes a man acceptable? They exhort us to good works, and yet determine not what is the work working, and what a resting in the work done. They incite us to charity, and yet make no difference between charity infused and charity wrought in us by our own endeavours. Nor do they declare whether it be an accident or a substance, a thing created or uncreated. They detest and abominate sin, but let me not live if they could define according to art what that is which we call sin, unless perhaps they were inspired by the spirit of the Scottists. Nor can I be brought to believe that Paul, by whose learning you may judge the rest, would have so often condemned questions, disputes, genealogies, and, as himself calls them, strives of words, if he had thoroughly understood those subtleties, especially when all the debates and controversies of those times were rude and blockish in comparison of the more than Chrysippean subtleties of our masters. Although yet the gentlemen are so modest that if they meet with anything written by the apostles, not so smooth and even as might be expected from a master, they do not presently condemn it, but handsomely bend it to their own purpose. So great respect and honour do they give, partly to antiquity, and partly to the name of apostle. 
and truly it was a kind of injustice to require so great things of them that never heard the least word from their masters concerning it and so if the like happen in chrysostom basil jerome they think it enough to say they are not obliged by it the apostles also confuted the heathen philosophers and jews a people than whom none more obstinate but rather by their good lives and miracles than syllogisms and yet there was scarce one among them that was capable of understanding the least quadlibet of the Scottist. But now, where is that heathen or heretic that must not presently stoop to such wire-drawn subtleties, unless he be so thick-skulled that he can't apprehend them, or so impudent as to hiss them down, or, being furnished with the same tricks, be able to make his party good with them? As if a man should set a conjurer on work against a conjurer, or fight with one hallowed sword against another, which would prove no other than a work to no purpose. For my own part, I conceive the Christians would do much better if instead of those dull troops and companies of soldiers with which they have managed their war with such doubtful success, they would send the bawling Scottists, the most obstinate Occamists, and invincible Albertists, to war against the Turks and Saracens and they would see, I guess, a most pleasant combat, and such a victory as was never before. For who is so faint whom their devices will not enliven? Who so stupid whom such spurs can't quicken? Or who so quick-sighted before whose eyes they can't cast a mist? But you'll say, I jest. Nor are you without cause, since even among divines themselves there are some that have learned better, and are ready to turn their stomachs at those foolish subtleties of the others. There are some that attest them as a kind of sacrilege, and count it the height of impiety to speak so irreverently of such hidden things, rather to be adored than explicated. To dispute of them with such profane and heathenish niceties, to define them so arrogantly, and pollute the majesty of divinity with such pitless and sordid terms and opinions. Meantime the others please, nay hug themselves in their happiness, and are so taken up with these pleasant trifles that they have not so much leisure as to cast the least eye on the gospel or St. Paul's epistles. And while they play the fool at this rate in their schools, they make account the universal church would otherwise perish, unless, as the poets fancied of Atlas, that he supported heaven with his shoulders, they underpropped the other with their syllogistical buttresses. And how great a happiness is this, think you, while, as if holy writ were a nose of wax, they fashion and refashion it according to their pleasure, while they require that their own conclusions, subscribed by two or three schoolmen, be accounted greater than Solon's laws, and preferred before the papal decretals, while, as censors of the world, they force every one to a recantation that differs but a hair's breadth from the least of their explicit or implicit determinations and those too they pronounce like oracles. This proposition is scandalous, this irreverent, this has a smack of heresy, this no very good sound, so that neither baptism, nor the gospel, nor Paul, nor Peter, nor St. Jerome, nor St. Augustine, no, nor most Aristotelian Thomas himself, can make a man a Christian, without these bachelors too be pleased to give him his grace, and the like in their subtlety in judging. For who would think he were no Christian that should say these two speeches, Matula putes and Matula putet, or Olai fervre and Olam fervre, were not both good Latin, unless their wisdoms had taught us the contrary? 
who had delivered the church from such mists of error, which yet no one ever met with, had they not come out with some university seal for it? And are they not most happy while they do these things? Then, for what concerns hell, how exactly they describe everything, as if they had been conversant in that commonwealth most part of their time? Again, how do they frame in their fancy new orbs, adding to those we have already an eighth? A goodly one, no doubt, and spacious enough, lest perhaps their happy souls might lack room to walk in, entertain their friends, and now and then play at football. And with these, and a thousand alike fopperies, their heads are so full stuffed and stretched that I believe Jupiter's brain was not near so big when, being in labour with Pallas, he was beholding to the midwifery of Vulcan's axe. And therefore you must not wonder if in their public disputes they are so bound about the head lest otherwise perhaps their brains might leap out. Nay, I have sometimes laughed myself to see them so tower in their own opinion when they speak most barbarously, and when they hum and haw so pitifully that none but one of their own tribe can understand them, they call it heights which the vulgar can't reach. For they say it is beneath the dignity of divine mysteries to be cramped and tied up to the narrow rules of grammarians, from whence we may conjecture the great prerogative of divines if they only have the privilege of speaking corruptly, in which yet every cobbler thinks himself concerned for his share. Lastly, they look upon themselves as somewhat more than men, as often as they are devoutly saluted by the name of our masters, in which they fancy that lies as much as in the Jews Jehovah, and therefore they reckon it a crime if Magister Noster be written other than in capital letters. And if any one should preposterously say Noster Magister, he has at once overturned the whole body of divinity. And next these come those that commonly call themselves the religious and monks, most false in both titles, when both a great part of them are farthest from religion, and no man swarm thicker in all places than themselves. Nor can I think of anything that could be more miserable did not I support them so many several ways. For whereas all men detest them to that height that they take it for ill luck to meet one of them by chance, yet such is their happiness that they flatter themselves. For first they reckon it one of the main points of piety if they are so illiterate that they can't so much as read. And then, when they run over their offices which they carry about them, rather by tale than understanding, they believe the gods more than ordinarily pleased with their braying. And some there are among them that put off their trumperies at vast rates, yet rove up and down for the bread they eat. Nay, there is scarce an inn, wagon, or ship into which they intrude not, to the no small damage of the commonwealth of beggars. And yet, like pleasant fellows, with all this vileness, ignorance, rudeness, and impudence, they represent to us, for so they call it, the lives of the apostles. Yet what is more pleasant than that they do all things by rule and, as it were, a kind of mathematics, the least swerving from which were a crime beyond forgiveness. As how many knots their shoes must be tied with, or what colour everything is, what distinction of habits, of what stuff made, how many straws brought their girdles, and of what fashion, how many bushels wide their cowl, how many fingers long their hair, and how many hours sleep. Which exact quality, how disproportionate it is, among such variety of bodies and tempers, who is there that does not perceive it? and yet, by reason of these fooleries, they not only set slight by others, but each different order, 
men otherwise professing apostolical charity, despise one another, and for the different wearing of a habit, or that is of darker colour, they put all things in combustion. And among these there are some so rigidly religious that their upper garment is hair-cloth, their inner of the finest linen, and, on the contrary, others wear linen without and hair next to their skins. Others, again, are as afraid to touch money as poison, and yet neither forbear wine nor dallying with women. In a word, tis their only care that none of them come near one another in their manner of living, nor do they endeavour how they may be like Christ, but how they may differ among themselves. And another great happiness they conceive in their names, while they call themselves Cordeliers, and among these two some are colleagues, some minors, some minims, some crossed. And again, these are Benedictines, those Bernardines, those Carmelites, those Augustines, these Williamites, and those Jacobines, as if it were not worth the while to be called Christians. And of these, a great part build so much on their ceremonies and petty traditions of men, that they think one heaven is too poor a reward for so great merit, little dreaming that the time will come when Christ, not regarding any of these trifles, will call them to account for his precept of charity. One shall show you a large trough full of all kinds of fish, another tumble you out so many bushels of prayers, another reckon you so many myriads of fasts, and fetch them up again in one dinner by eating till he cracks again. Another produces more bundles of ceremonies than seven of the stoutest ships would be able to carry. Another brags he has not touched a penny these threescore years without two pair of gloves at least upon his hands. Another wears a cowl so lined with grease that the poorest tarpaulin would not stoop to take it up. Another will tell you he has lived these fifty-five years like a sponge, continually fastened to the same place. Another has grown hoarse with his daily chanting. Another has contracted a lethargy by his solitary living, and another the palsy in his tongue for want of speaking. But Christ, interrupting them in their vanities, which otherwise were endless, will ask them, Whence this new kind of Jews? I acknowledge one commandment which is truly mine, of which alone I hear nothing. I promised, tis true, my father's heritage, and that without parables, not to cows, odd prayers, and fastings, but to the duties of faith and charity." nor can I acknowledge them that least acknowledge their faults. They that would seem holier than myself, let them, if they like, possess to themselves those three hundred and sixty-five heavens of Basilides the heretic's invention, or command them whose foolish traditions they have preferred before my precepts to erect them a new one. When they shall hear these things, and see common ordinary persons preferred before them, with what countenance, think you, will they behold one another, in the meantime, they are happy in their hopes, and for this also they are beholding to me. And yet these kind of people, though they are, as it were, of another commonwealth, no man dares despise, especially those begging friars, because they are privy to all men's secrets by means of confessions, as they call them, which yet were no less than treason to discover, unless, being got drunk, they have a mind to be pleasant, and then all comes out, that is to say, by hints and conjectures, but suppressing the names. But if any one should anger these wasps, they'll sufficiently revenge themselves in their public sermons, and so point out their enemy by circumlocutions that there's no one but understands whom tis they mean, unless he understand nothing at all. Nor will they give over their barking till you throw the dogs a bone. 
and now tell me what juggler or mountebank you'd rather behold than hear them rhetorically play the fool in their preachments, and yet most sweetly imitating what rhetoricians have written touching the art of good speaking. Good God, what several posters they have! How they shift their voice, sing out their words, skip up and down, and are ever and anon making such new faces that they confound all things with noise. And yet this neck of theirs is no less a mystery that runs in succession from one brother to another, which, though it be not lawful for me to know, however, I'll venture at it by conjectures. And first they invoke whatever they have scraped from the poets, and in the next place, if they are to discourse of charity, they take their rise from the river Nilus, or to set out the mystery of the cross from Bell and the dragon, or to dispute of fasting from the twelve signs of the zodiac, or, being to preach of faith, ground their matter on the square of a circle. I have heard myself one, and he no small fool. I was mistaken, I would have said, scholar, that being in a famous assembly explaining the mystery of the Trinity, that he might both let them see his learning was not ordinary, and withal satisfy some theological ears, he took a new way, to wit from the letters, syllables, and the word itself, then from the coherence of the nominative case and the verb, and the adjective and substantive. And while most of the audience wondered, and some of them muttered that of Horace, what does all this trumpery drive at? At last he brought the matter to this head, that he would demonstrate that the mystery of the Trinity was so clearly expressed in the very rudiments of grammar, that the best mathematician could not chalk it out more plainly. And in this discourse did this most superlative theologian beat his brains for eight whole months, that at this hour he is as blind as a beetle, to wit, all the sight of his eyes being run into the sharpness of his wit. But for all that he thinks nothing of his blindness, rather taking the same for too cheap a price of such a glory as he won thereby. And besides him I met with another, some eighty years of age, and such a divine that he'd have sworn Scotus himself was revived in him. He, being upon the point of unfolding the mystery of the name Jesus, did with wonderful subtlety demonstrate that there lay hidden in those letters whatever could be said of him, for that it was only declined with three cases, he said, it was a manifest token of the divine trinity, and then that the first ended in S, the second in M, the third in U. There was in it an ineffable mystery, to wit those three letters declaring to us that he was the beginning, middle, and end, summum, medium, et ultimum, of all. Nay, the mystery was yet more abstruse, for he so mathematically split the word Jesus into two equal parts that he left the middle letter by itself, and then told us that that letter in Hebrew was schin, or sin, and that sin in the Scotch tongue, as he remembered, signified as much as sin, from whence he gathered that it was Jesus that took away the sins of the world. At which new exposition the audience were so wonderfully intent and struck with admiration especially the theologians, that they wanted little, but that Niobe-like they had been turned to stones. Whereas the like had almost happened to me, as befell the Priapus in Horace. And not without cause, for when were the Grecian Demosthenes or Roman Cicero ever guilty of the like? They thought that introduction faulty that was wider the matter, as if it were not the way of carters and swineherds that have no more wit than God send them. But these learned men think their preamble, for so they call it, then chiefly rhetorical, when it has least coherence with the rest of the argument, that the admiring audience may in the meanwhile whisper to themselves, What will he be at now? 
In the third place they bring in instead of narration some texts of scripture, but handle them cursorily, and as it were by the by, when yet it is the only thing they should have insisted on. And fourthly, as it were changing a part in the play, they bold out with some question in divinity, and many times relating neither to earth nor heaven, and this they look upon as a piece of art. Here they erect their theological crests, and beat into the people's ears those magnificent titles of illustrious doctors, subtle doctors, most subtle doctors, seraphic doctors, cherubim doctors, holy doctors, unquestionable doctors, and the like, and then throw abroad among the ignorant people syllogisms, majors, minors, conclusions, corollaries, suppositions, and those so weak and foolish that they are below pedantry. There remains yet the fifth act, in which one would think they should show their mastery. And here they bring in some foolish insipid fable out of Speculum Historiale, or Gesta Romanorum, and expound it allegorically, tropologically, and anagogically. And after this manner do they and their chimera, and such as Horace despaired of compassing when he wrote Humano Capiti, etc. End of Part 7